Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello again, Sixpack family. Welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 127. I've been proving the existence of God to people for over 30 years, and my apologetics cache is pretty full, but this week we're going to meet a man who's added a lot more to that body of evidence for God's existence. His name is Ken Fredrickson. Hey, Michael Voris here, founder and CEO of Church Militant. I want to invite you to come on over to our website, churchmilitant.com, and check out Evening News. It's our most comprehensive news show from an authentic Catholic lens, and it's live-streamed every Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Our goal is to clear up misinformation so Catholics like you can be informed. So, what are you waiting for? Visit churchmilton.com today. For over 30 years, I've proven God's existence with logic and right reason. I've used arguments like the argument from design, the argument from conscience, and the bad man, madman argument. But I've always told people there is no empirical evidence. I was wrong. There is empirical evidence, but I've just been too thick to recognize it. Ken Fredrickson recently published a book, Killing Atheism, Powerful Evidence and Reasons to Believe Jesus. I'm discussing this new book with Ken in an interview. Let's listen to what he has to say. This week, we're spending time with a new six-pack family friend named Ken Fredrickson. He's the author of the new book, Killing Atheism, Powerful Evidence and Reasons to Believe Jesus. I became intrigued when Ken told me that his book presents empirical evidence for God's existence. I'd never heard anyone make that claim before, so I asked Ken to send me his book. I was skeptical, but I'd promised Ken that if it was 100% orthodox, I'd interview him. Well, this book turned out to be incredibly well-researched and written. I really can't help but recommend it. Before I tell you more about the book, though, let's welcome Ken Fredrickson to the Cantankerous Catholic. Ken, welcome to the show. (laughs) I hope the six-pack family will be interested in this interview. Thank you, Joe, for having me on your show. That's uh, it's really helpful. I would like to get this book out. I think it uh, really does prevent the evidence, empirical evidence, objectively verified as to uh, uh, the risen Christ. Okay, great. Well, we're going to dive into that. Ken, I'm pretty sure that the six-pack family really hasn't ever heard of you. Will you please tell us a bit about yourself and your background? I sure can. Born and raised on a farm in upstate New York. Uh, My father was a Mormon missionary and uh, just a great love of Christ. He taught me many, many things. One of the things he always taught me was to be open to uh, the other side, what the other person had to say. I was uh, basically a a Mormon until, oh, probably late teens when I had a chance to really start examining what they they were saying. And I read, read a book which had a profound effect on me, and that was the book No Man Knows My History by Fawn Brody. And it was a very objective, impartial account of the life of Joseph Smith. In any event, I went into the Air Force, became a navigator in the Air Force, served for four and a half years, flying in out of out of Vietnam, that type of thing. 
And uh, I remember very clearly when I was first went in, they asked me, well, what religion are you? Because they put that on your dog tags, as you may recall. And uh, I said, well, I'm Christian. I said, well, no, that's not good enough. You got a, what are you, a Methodist? Are you, what are you? I said, no, I'm a Christian. So that ended up on my, on my dog tags. I was fortunate enough to marry a wonderful woman uh, that I met while I was in the Air Force, uh, a good Catholic, Irish Catholic family. And uh, that is what eventually brought me into the Catholic Church is the more I could see the um, just the profound depth of the church and its history and 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 the falsity of the uh, the sola scriptura approach to to Christianity. But in any event, I I finished up my term with the Air Force and went to law school. Well, first I finished my degree at the University of California at Berkeley, where I got my degree in criminology. Went back to the University of Pennsylvania Law School, where I had received a scholarship, and uh, graduated from there and, and went into Wall Street, practiced law there for a period of time, and then migrated out to a um, some corporations and served as in-house counsel. But my approach in law was always the corporate and securities arena, and my approach was always to bring bring the parties together. If you're in mergers and acquisitions, which I did a lot of, you need to protect your client, but more than that or equal to that, you have to make certain that your client and the other side were on the same page and try to bridge the gap. And um, I tried to do that. And and uh, I've taken that particular kind of uh, skill set, if you want to call it that, and applied it to this book and to my research. I'm always trying to see what the other guy is thinking and try to bring him into the fold. And um, it's, it's, and it's not always easy, uh, particularly when you start doing research and, and you see what, how Christians, some Christians attack other Christians because they don't have the same set of beliefs, which is, to me, it's just sheer nonsense. And I try to look upon that Christianity as one huge mansion and it's got a lot of rooms in it and a hallway. And I, it's not my idea. This came from C.S. Lewis is probably about the, one of the best writers of Christianity that that there ever was. But what we're trying to do is bring people into the Christian mansion where they can come into the hallway and then they can look around and see what room they want to enter. And I think the Catholic room is by far the best room to enter, but that's my view. And, uh, and I think the appearances by Mary substantiate that. And in addition, and also the Orthodox, I think the Orthodox is they're uh, completely unrecognized in this in this country, which is a shame because they are so close to the Catholic Church. It's such a shame that they're not able to bring the two together. But um, in any event, um, uh, that, that's that's where I am, just trying to bring folks into the Christian mansion, trying to make certain that uh, within the Christian mansion, there's not a lot of screaming and yelling at each other, because when they do that, the folks on the outside don't want to come in. I, I think that's kind of it in a nutshell. I've got four wonderful grandsons, or three wonderful grandsons and a granddaughter, uh, three fabulous sons and two wonderful great daughters-in-law and, and a fantastic wife that's been so supportive all these years. So I've been very, very fortunate. That's great. Thank you, Ken, for telling us about yourself and your background. Uh, uh, I'm pretty certain that our listeners will be happy to hear that. Ken, let me ask you, what motivated you to write Killing Atheism. What specifically well, think, motivated you? Yeah, a, a couple of things. Uh, as you look about us, and as you know, there's there's been a general migration away from from the Christianity in general, and f- and and 
I'm not so sure whether there's been a migration away from the Catholic Church or whether the folks that have left were never really Catholics. The, the principal reason that they leave is they buy into the secular argument that there is no evidence for God. He's a hidden God. If he were there, he would reveal himself. He doesn't reveal himself, and therefore he must not exist. So as I started thinking about that and and recognizing that I that I certainly am not a theologian and I don't know much about high theology and I can't really talk about the you know, traditional uh, apologetics uh, in terms of the traditional arguments. But what I am have what I have been is a lawyer, and part of what a lawyer does is to assemble evidence, and that's what I did. Uh, I just think it's imperative that folks know that God didn't, that Jesus did not abandon us after he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. He did not abandon us. He gave us the apostles. He gave us people like you to, to, to keep us on the right track and to, to keep us moving properly. And he, 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 he just, he, <laughs> he said, okay, I'm going to be with you always. Uh, and of course he's there in the Eucharist, but, but he's, he's also there through other people. Uh, such as yourself, such as the bishops that that remain true to the faith, such as so many people, and um, all both of them. <laughs> <laughs> so th- that's what motivated me. So I started doing some more research and started digging into depth on what what evidence really is there, empirical evidence. And obviously, we've all heard of Fatima and Lourdes, but I think most of us <clears throat> we just simply have just oh, okay, boy, that's nice. There's miracles and the healings. Okay, well, they were probably nothing more than uh, some kind of a uh, placebo effect or something like that. Or the Fatima, uh, the miracle of the sun. Okay, big deal. So, I mean, if you get on the internet and you look at the the videos that are there sometimes from the skeptics, and they're just, they're criminal almost in terms of how they present what took place. So, I decided to really look into that in much more detail. And uh, so I ended up with uh, five particular uh, Marian appearances that I thought were that people ought to know about. And, and, and yeah, and number one, of course, is, is Fatima. And if we have the chance, I'd just like to kind of go through that a little bit for for your folks. Uh, yes, we will in a moment. Okay, and and then of course, Lords and all of the healings that have taken place there. But there are others too that people just they may have heard about a little bit. One of them is Our Lady of Knock in Ireland, and that is a profound event that people just don't really know about. Uh, another one is Our Lady of Zaytun uh, in Cairo, Egypt, and where she appeared on a Coptic church uh, at the site where tradition says that uh, where uh, the Holy Family stayed after they fled the Holy Land <clears throat> in order to avoid persecution. And then, of course, we have Our Lady of Guadalupe. So those are the five that I focus on in the book. Uh, there are events also that have occurred which are just absolutely extraordinary. Uh, one, of course, is what I call it's the Great Pishtigo Fire. Who's heard of the Great Pishtigo Fire? I hadn't until <laughs> I read your book. It's a, it's amazing, and and, and it was over. Uh, I'm afraid it was overshadowed by another event, another fire that day, which was the Great Chicago Fire. So that's what everybody's heard of, but not the Pishtigo Fire. And what happened there? Is just absolutely extraordinary. You know, Ken, I've I I, I don't want to interrupt so much, but no. I want to give you an opportunity to kind of delve into this more here in a minute, uh, because you know I've I've been proving the existence of God through the use of logic and reason for over thirty years. 
Uh, I've always told people that empirical evidence for God's existence doesn't exist because it's just that, evidence, not proof. Although it's helpful, you don't have to have empirical evidence. For example, scientists definitively knew that DNA existed a full 25 years before they had empirical evidence of its existence, and they arrived at their conclusion strictly through logic and reason. After having read your book, once again, I have to admit that I was wrong. Uh, I do that a lot as <laughs> I do that a lot as I get older. By the way, I was impressed with the way you wrote the book. You seem like a trial lawyer presenting an argument to a jury, which I think you alluded to already. Tell us a bit about your empirical evidence and why you believe this is a good book for the six-pack family to read and use to help convert their atheist friends and family. Well, uh, as I mentioned, we've got the well. First of all, the the issue of uh, the formal apologetics. My view is right. Um, we run into problems with that because wherever there's an argument on one side, there's a counter argument on the other side and people go back and forth, back and forth. But I, and I think the, the issue of, of apologetics is to kind of lay the groundwork to show, okay, it is reasonable. It is reasonable to believe in the risen Christ. Uh, that's what apologetics do, does. But you know what? And I don't care whether it's apologetics or whether it's evidence only takes you so far. You have to have, number one, a desire to, to know the Christ, number one. Number two, you have to have humility and you have to have prayer. If you don't have those things, you can forget it. I mean, I, I'm on Twitter and when I first got on Twitter, I started to talk about, I started to include people that identify themselves as atheists and agnostics. And all I ever got back was just snarky remarks. Uh, and it was very sad. And they didn't want to believe and they wouldn't believe. I don't care if Jesus rose in front of them uh, from the dead. They would not believe. Uh, and, and it was really, really sad. So what I'm trying to do is I, for those people that can't follow apologetics, uh, and I'm one of them because I'll tell you, it gets really confusing after a while. What I can show is, look, at there is no explanation for what happened at Fatima. There is no explanation for what the healings at Lourdes and other places. There is no explanation for so many things that that take place, and and it's um, and and if you don't come to the conclusion that the biblical story about Jesus is correct, that's just because you don't want to, uh, right? And it's that simple. And um, so I, I guess the bottom line is we all need the grace need the grace of God's intervention in our minds and in our hearts to accept Him. And uh, once you have that desire, then look at the apologetics, look at the evidence. And when you combine those two, I don't see how you can come up, come to any other conclusion. If that's, you know, if you don't want to come to that conclusion, you won't come to it. That's true. Yeah. So you've given, I mean, this is really kind of a, uh, I don't know, it, it's, a, it's a trial transcript is what your book is. <laughs> and so Give us some of the evidence. Talk to us about Fatima and about that. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, that one in Egypt. And and uh, even talk about Lourdes a little bit if you want to, or some other things. I I find this stuff fascinating. Well, you're, you're right. It is fascinating. And in, and let, let me start with, with Fatima. I think most people know the general story about it, but let me just uh, start from kind of the beginning, just very brief summary, and, and that is, Beginning in on May 13th, 1917, three children, ages 7, 8, and 10, Jacinta, uh, Francisco, and Lucia, 
claimed they saw a heavenly lady who just who, who suddenly appeared before them on a on a small oak tree uh, near Fatima. And <clears throat> excuse me, they say it was an oak tree, but when we think of an oak tree, we think of a you know seventy five foot tall monster. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not what that was. It's about a three foot tall little kind of more like a shrub that she appeared to them. Uh, and and at, and as she appeared and she, and she appeared five more times, uh, she appeared on the 13th of May, 13th of June, the 13th of July, July. She came to the site on August 13th as well. But the children were not there because they had been detained, arrested and imprisoned by the local town magistrate. So she appeared to them again on August 19th and September 13th, at which time it was another incredible miracle that nobody ever talks about. And then again on October 13th, when we had the miracle of the sun and several other <clears throat> miracles that occurred that nobody really pays attention to. So uh, all three children said that the lady appeared. Only Jacinta, which is a seven-year-old, and Lucia, the 10-year-old, could hear her. Francisco could not hear her, but he saw her. Don't ask me why. That's just the way the hands are dealt. There's sometimes. been a lot of speculation about that. Oh, oh yes. And um, so beginning in July, and the, her main, the, the main thrust of her messages were to pray the rosary. Every single visit she had, she said, pray the rosary. And in fact, even the last vision where people were seeing the miracle of the sun, at the same time, the children were seeing another revelation by her, by the Holy Family, which just, it absolutely parallels the rosary. And, and I get into that. But I mean, how all of these things come together is just so extraordinary. And the details, in that event, beginning in July, she told the children that she would effect a miracle on October 13th so that everyone could believe. So she told them that again on August 19th. And on September 13th, she said exactly the same thing. And she also said an interesting thing. She said, if you had not been imprisoned by the authorities, the miracle would have been even greater. And you say, well, why should that be? And you have to think back and say, well, if we're all members of the body of Christ, what we do affects other members of the body of Christ. And to, so that when there is a, a, an attack on one part, it just hurts everybody else as well. I guess that's why there's no such thing as a private sin. So on, on September 13th, she said that she would effect a miracle on October 13th at noon at the Covada area, which is where apparitions were taking place. She said, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and everybody was kind of skeptical about that. Not everybody, excuse me, the people that were outside were kind of skeptical about that. But not the townspeople, because by this time they had seen all of these things take place and and how her visits gradually more and more became convinced because there's so many other things that took place as well. Yeah. You know, you know, Ken, I, uh, uh, I point out to people on Fatima, this is the only time in human history when a miracle was told foretold as to when and where it was going to happen in advance. The only time in human history. Exactly right. And and, you know, one of the <clears throat> the Twitter responses that I had was, I said, well, how do you explain that the children predicted the miracle? And <laughs> one of them came back and said, well, they were just lucky. I mean, what <laughs> kind of nonsense is that? And <clears throat> another one said, well, I'd be more impressed if they said exactly what the miracle was going to be. So they don't want to believe whatever you say. Right. It's just, 
Did you ever see the show, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Caesar Milan, The Dog Whisperer? No, I haven't. Well, I've heard of it. Well, what he does is he people have dogs that are unruly or whatever, and he comes in and works with them sometimes for months until he gets their problem straightened out. And I'm thinking, look at all the time that he spent, those people spent on that dog. Think about all the other dogs that are in the pond that could be saved and rescued. You know, in other words, you go so far and then you say, okay, that's it. I'm going to help somebody else. So maybe that's what we need to do when we talk about unbelievers is just go so far as much as we can and then just pray and ask for the grace of God to be with them. Well, you know, Ken, our job is to plant seeds. God doesn't expect, uh, he doesn't expect us to make conversions. He doesn't expect us to have success. He only expects us to be obedient and try. And for everything above that, you know, it's, it's above our pay grade. It's his responsibility. I've been making, I've made hundreds of converts over the last 30 years. And people slap me on the back about that and tell me how great it is. And I tell them, no, the bottom line is all I did was regurgitate Catholic truth. The Holy Spirit did the work. (laughs) You know, he, he came up with the prospect. He came up. I gave the pitch. He came up with the clothes and he uh, set the deal in stone. So, you know, that's all him. Absolutely. You know, and what you're saying just reminds me of, I'll just digress here for a second. On Our Lady of Knock, uh, one of the people generally don't associate Knock with, with cures, but one of the cures that I talk about in the book, Instant Healing, is that of Marion Carroll. And Marion Carroll <clears throat> had multiple sclerosis for a number of years. And and she was just, uh, she was blind, basically. She couldn't walk. Uh, she had a fantastic husband and children that took care of her. They changed her. They did everything that you have to do. And when she went to knock, as the holy, as the monstrance went past her, she was, quote, quote, instantly cured, instantly healed. She got up, blindness, everything. And she said the most amazing thing was that in front of her, as she rose, was a, a heart. It was her heart. And she saw God's love in it. And but she was immediately cured, and well, she is still alive, of course, because this took place in 1989, and she is still alive, and she does videos on YouTube where she talks about this. And I would encourage your listeners to to go on YouTube and uh, listen to and watch her and listen to her story. But one of the things that she has done post her healing is to set up kind of a, a mini ministry, if you will, about healing people and the healing hands of Christ. And she said just exactly what you just got through saying. She said, all I am, she said, I just bring the prescription. I just bring them to it. She said, it's Christ that does the healing, but I just do it. I just bring them there. That's what you're doing. And that's what <clears throat> I'm trying to do with this book. Exactly. And I'm and I'm uh, thrilled to death that you're doing that too, because I think this is a great book. Tell us, you know, there are two things that you talked about in your book. One I was vaguely familiar with, and the other I hadn't heard of before until I read your book. Uh, The one that I was vaguely familiar with was the Marian apparition in Egypt. And the other one that I'm I'm terrible at remembering this stuff. The other one was uh, that I'd never heard of before was that holy fire in where was it? Jerusalem? In Jerusalem, it? yes. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk about those two things a little bit? Uh, I sure can. Well, let me start uh, with the holy 
fire, I guess, well, or with Zaytun, because Zaytun was something that most people never even heard of. But beginning in about 1968, people <clears throat> that were around this Coptic church, which, as I said, was a site where tradition says that the Holy Family stayed when they fled the Holy Land. This mysterious white figure in the, sh- in the traditional form of what you think of as Mary was on the roof of the Coptic church, and it would kind of glide back and forth, and it would come to the cross, and it would bow down and just do that. I mean, it was it was sometimes it, it lasted for minutes, and sometimes it lasted for hours. This occurred innumerable times from 1968 to 1971. There was absolutely wow. zero explanation. There was no messages given. There was no verbal uh, messages, but there were plenty of symbolic messages, one of which is, I am over the place where we stayed when we fled Egypt. And it is, it is I, it is the, the Blessed Virgin. I am up here. Look to, look to the cross, just as I look to the cross. Uh, Muslims saw it. Uh, atheists saw it. Everybody saw it. It was just extraordinary. Um, and then it stopped in 1971. I don't know. How do you explain that? And, and I'll tell you, the Skeptoid, which is a um, online site for the skeptical, has said that they looked at it and said they're not impressed at all. <laughs> not impressed at all. He said they won't buy that explanation. So, and and I thought, <clears throat> and I kind of point this out in the book. I said, well, what happens? Let's say it for at at twelve hundred Greenwich time, um, a cross appeared in the sky over everywhere, everywhere, wherever you were, you could see it for fifteen minutes. I don't care if you're on the North Pole, the South Pole, day, night doesn't make a bit of difference. It was there for fifteen minutes. And I said, you know, I would expect when the next Sunday rolled along, probably there would be an uptick in church attendance. But then, you know, after a while, the talking heads would get on and they'd say, well, you know, think about this. You got billions and billions of galaxies and stars. Guess what? Sooner or later, something like this was bound to happen. And they're not impressed. They would be impressed if it said a little sign above it said, Jesus saves. So there's always going to be people that doubt. That was Zaytun, and it was not a Catholic. And most of my evidence that I cite is from the Catholic Church, not because I'm saying there's more that comes from the Catholic Church, although I think there is, but because it's better documented. And that's certainly the case right. with, with the healings and with Fatima uh, and things like that. That was Zaytun. The Holy Fire is associated with the Orthodox Church. Ever since about the 5th century, this tradition has evolved, not evolved, but has taken place where an Orthodox priest— on Holy Saturday, which is the Saturday between Easter Sunday and Good Friday in the Orthodox tradition, would go in to the Church of the Sepulchre, which is where Jesus was, was laid. And he would go in there and kneel down in front of the, the slab, if that's what you want to call it. And people would gather on the outside. He said, well, what's a holy fire? Well, he's searching all that before the priest goes in. He's searched by the, by the guards and he doesn't have anything. And you say, well, so he goes in and then... After a while, this light appears, and he comes out, and he's got light. And you say, well, okay, so he hit some light in there. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is when he goes in there, and he describes what happens and what's been going on since about the 4th or 5th century, is that sometimes there's flashes. I mean, it's like uh, sometimes uh, there's sudden illumination within the sepulcher itself that beginning in the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth century, nobody could have access to. People could see it on the outside. The fire would 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 rise from the tomb, 
are from the slab, according to what the priest says, come out. And then the candles and other lanterns would ignite spontaneously on the outside. Now, what does this prove? I don't know, but something really miraculous and strange <laughs> happened. And it's, and it's associated with the Orthodox Church. Yeah, and it's even been video recorded, hasn't it? Oh, it's been video recorded. You can get on YouTube again, and you can see what happens. But what gets me is this flashing and the spectacular lighting that goes on inside the church itself. Something that they, you could say, well, they've got that now, of course, but they didn't have it 100 years ago or 200 years ago. That's very uh, incredible. And, and, and another event that people just don't know about is Our Lady of China. I, didn't, I, I don't know if you ever heard of that one or not. Actually, I hadn't until I read it in your book, no. Well, it's just intriguing. And back in about 1899, 1900, there was the Boxer Re- Rebellion. Uh, and the Boxers were a group of the Chinese, whatever you want to call them, that were trying to drive out non-Chinese influences, non-Chinese people. They were it's just especially severe on their attacks against the Christians. And they attacked this village. Uh, some, I think, 90 miles southwest of Beijing, if I recall. Uh, I, I can't think of the name of Dengzhu or something like that. And uh, they attacked the village. There was 10,000 10, boxer soldiers waiting to get in, slaughter the 700 to 1,000 Catholics that were there. And for a while, they were able to hold them off. That is, the, the Catholics that were in there. They had like four cannon. And then they launched, boxers launched their final attack. And all of a sudden, they started firing into the air above the church, above the town. And then they just fled. They took off. And later on, after some of the boxers converted, they said, they, you know, people asked them, what happened? They said, this mysterious lady in white appeared above the town. And we just started shooting. And, we, it was, and then this horseman came and drove us back, and we just fled. Well, who was the horseman? I mean, people think it's St. Michael, but, but, but who knows? How do you explain that? These, yeah, that 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 would be my thought that it was Saint Michael or Gabriel one. <laughs> but yeah, how do you explain that? You know, I I believe all these years that there is no empirical evidence for God's existence, and I never ever it's it's been right in my face the whole time. And it took your book to make me realize how much empirical evidence there really is. A current craze in American society right now is UFOs, and uh, there is a tremendous amount of evidence, including empirical evidence for UFOs, but yet there are people who insist that everything is generated by our government to trick us. I don't know why they would want to do that, you know, and so you're always going to have people who are not going to believe because the evidence is irrelevant to them. They're going to believe what they want to believe. But still, your book, I strongly urge all of the six-pack family to get this book. I'm going to include a link for it in my show notes this week, and I strongly urge you to get it. And in fact, after you've read it, go back to Amazon and write a review for this book, because those reviews will help get this book more widely disseminated. You folks uh, at home listening to this, you know I don't recommend anything unless I believe in it. And you know that I won't permit anything on this show that isn't uh, 100% orthodox. So you really need to get a copy of this book. 
What do you say about that, Ken? <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be terrific. And and uh, because, as I say, my point, but the reason I wrote it is to to bring people back into the into the fold. Because the number one reason people leave the fold, the number one reason that people reject Christianity, is they say that there's no evidence for God. He's hidden. If he was there, why would he show himself? Well, he does show himself. Just have to yes, he does. And 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 you're right about that's the reason. One of the reasons they give for leaving the church. Bottom line is our bishops have failed us the last sixty years, and they've dumbed down the faith. People really aren't taught the Catholic faith. They haven't been for generations now. Well, uh, Kent, go ahead. No, I was going to say that is absolutely the truth, and I think you mentioned somewhere that I remember that seventy percent or thereabouts of the people don't believe in the in the real presence. Is that is that true? It's actually up to eighty two percent now. Well they're not Catholics but, uh, then. Right. And they don't even realize that I I dug into those statistics a little bit and it's quite apparent that they're not rejecting the church's teaching on the real presence. They simply don't know what it is. You know, I I waited until we moved here to St. Louis about seven years ago to become a member of the Knights of Columbus. And I went through my first and second degrees. Then when it was time for my third degree, I showed up there for it. And nobody had told me what it was going to be until I got there. And I was elevated to the third degree with roughly 50 other men. And I was told what it was going to be was we were going to, they were going to find out how proficient we are in the faith. And I thought, oh, boy, this is going to be embarrassing. Some of these guys are going to really put me to shame. And, Ken, they couldn't even answer basic questions like how many mysteries are in the rosary? What are the mysteries of the rosary? I was embarrassed for them. Only me and two other fellows there were able to answer questions. So, you know, after this ceremony... They're Knights of Columbus and they're Catholic, for crying out loud. They're going to have a little beer and something to eat. So during that period, I went ahead and asked some of the men just, oh, I guess you could say covert questions because I didn't want to sound accusatory or anything. And uh, I actually got feedback from men saying, yeah, that was tough. They were asking us some really advanced questions. Oh, wow. And I thought, advanced questions? Wow. They asked us nothing but basic stuff, very basic catechetical information. And that was whenever Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, was born, because I decided after that it was time to quit trying to make converts and start focusing on the Catholics in the pew, because they honestly don't know. And your book is going to help advance that a great deal. And my listeners, the Six Pack family, they're all about being able to share this kind of stuff with uh, their family and friends. So, Ken, I understand you're writing another book. What is it? Uh, <clears throat> that book is uh, still struggling with the title of it, but it basically, it's uh, my tentative title. Title is "Praying to Mary: A Layman's Guide to Understand and Then Parentheses and Defend," uh, and this is. It, the, the targeted audience on this, of course, is uh, open-minded Protestants uh, and uh, others so, so that they can understand, why do we pray to, pray to Mary? What's the basis for that? Uh, and uh, also, so many Catholics, I think, don't understand why we would want to 
go to Jesus through Mary. And so that's what I'm, that's what this next book is about. And I have to be careful. I don't duplicate stuff that I've got in this book. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think a little duplication might, uh, yeah. might be in, in hand, you know, it's something, something should be done. I, I have learned over the years that the best teacher is repetition. And if people read your second book and read some of the same things they read in your first book, they may not remember what they read in the first book, but you've enforced it in the second one. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, good point. Good point. And part of what I try to do as well is um, I, I, you probably could tell from my book, I kind of like music. <laughs> and I, I love the the hymns and I love the particular what I would call the old Southern gospel music. And I do too. And it's just, and so what I've done, because part of praying to Mary, I, I, I then go into an explanation of the rosary, some of the mysteries, and I try to associate one song with each of the mysteries. And, um, uh, and just, just so that helps people remember them. And so <clears throat> the next time they hear, for instance, the Southern Gospel song, Where You'll Never Grow Old, they'll think about the uh, assumption of Mary into heaven, because that's what she goes, you'll never grow old. Uh, that's right. Or Whispering Hope, again, every one of these mysteries, uh, yeah, counterpart with some kind of a, uh, either a Catholic hymn or, or a Protestant hymn. It, it just kind of brings home the thing. Now, if you don't like music, if someone doesn't like music or they don't care about that, then this won't have any meaning to them. But for others, it could be really uplifting and keep them on track. Yes. Yes. How close are you to publication on this book? Well, I'm, 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 I'm kind of back to square one on this because uh, probably a couple months from now, because I wrote it before. And then as I started looking at it and started getting this book published, I thought, well, I got to make some changes here and there. And so, so I don't know <laughs> to answer your question. <laughs> I know what you mean. I've, I, I've been working on a particular book for 20 years. And every time I get a little bit along, I say, nope. And I throw it all the way and start all over from scratch. So I understand what you mean there. Uh, it can get frustrating. Whenever the book does come out, and I'm hoping that it'll be this year, do you think you'd come back and tell us about it? Oh, absolutely. That would be great. That would be fantastic. Okay. Well, Ken, I really appreciate you having been on the show this week, and I know that the Six Pack family is going to enjoy this. If you would like, we will put your email address in the show notes so that listeners can contact you if they want to. Of course, I understand if you don't want to do that too, but you know, we'll we'll do that. They can always come through me to get to you if you don't want to put your email in the show notes. I think they might have questions after having listened to this and read the book. So, Ken, thank you very much for being on. Well, thank you, Joe. I really appreciate it. And uh, together, maybe we can help some people. Amen, brother. Thank you. We'll see you again. I hope you enjoyed Ken Fredrickson. This was his very first interview, and he was understandably nervous, but it was a real pleasure to be with him. As you very well know, I refuse to recommend anything that's the least bit unorthodox, and I seldom recommend any new book or video. There are so many published today, and most of them are mediocre at best. I know because mine are just mediocre. Ken's book is one of the exceptions. It's a book that rises way above mediocrity. 
So look for the link in my show notes and get a copy of Killing Atheism, Powerful Evidence and Reasons to Believe Jesus. Get it right now. You'll love it. As you know, I don't like asking for your financial support. I always want a win-win situation whenever possible. Well, I've got a way for you to help this apostolate without you having to do anything you're not already doing. Everybody shops on Amazon. I've developed an affiliate relationship with Amazon. When you visit cantankerouscatholic.com and click on the episodes page, blog page, or about the show page, on the right-hand side of the page you'll see Amazon ads for Catholic books and merchandise. There's no price difference from Amazon's site, but if you click on something you're interested in and buy it, Amazon will pay me a small commission just for you clicking on that ad. It doesn't stop there either. Anytime you're on Amazon and find things you want to buy, send me the link to the items and I'll send you another link to click when you're ready to buy. You won't pay a dime more for the item, but Amazon will pay me a commission. That way you can help to financially support this apostolate just by doing what you were going to do anyway. Remember, Visit the episodes, blog, and about the show pages to find Catholic books and merchandise, and send me links to other things you want to buy on Amazon, and I'll send you links that will pay this apostolate a small commission. And I thank you in advance for your support. Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, wants to make sure you're informed about all the Catholic news you need to know. Here's Joe Sixpack's top five Catholic news picks for this episode. Catholic news pick number five. Hats off to Fox News. Democrats' dream of passing their partisan election overhaul hit the skids as Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat from West Virginia, announced his opposition to the bill. It's the wrong piece of legislation to bring our country together and unite our country, and I'm not supporting that because I think it would divide us more. I don't want to be in a country that's divided any further, said Manchin, who also said he would not vote to end the filibuster. Amazing! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 4 Hats off to the Washington Examiner. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy called for the resignation of Dr. Anthony Fauci, the chief medical advisor to the pretender. I mean, everything we're finding here, how can the president, and I know the American people don't have trust in Dr. Fauci, McCarthy said about the recent discovery of Fauci emails from 2020, let's find a person we can trust. Take politics aside. I mean, we're talking about American lives here. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic News Pick number three. Hats off to the Washington Times. A New York psychiatrist recently gave a guest lecture at the Yale School of Medicine in which she stated, I had fantasies of unloading a revolver into any white person that got in my way. She added, This is the cost of talking to white people at all. The cost of your own life as they suck you dry. There are no good apples out there. Despicable! 
You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick number two. Hats off to Fox News. Republican Javier Villalobos was just elected mayor of McAllen, Texas. The surprise victory could be a sign that more Hispanic voters in South Texas are sticking with the GOP even after Trump. Amazing news! McAllen, Texas is a major border town of 140,000 people, 85% Hispanic, and just elected a Republican mayor. The macro realignment accelerates in South Texas and elsewhere as Hispanics rally to America first, former Trump 2020 campaign advisor Steve Cortez wrote. Hildego County went to Biden by 17 points. That's amazing! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic, Catholic News Pick number one. Hats off to the Washington Examiner. Nicole Sanchez, under the persona Nicolu, has earned a massive fan base with her Eat the Rich socialist rhetoric. Now she's driving a new BMW and moving into a $2 million apartment. Hypocrite. We're watching you. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. but I am fair. It's time for the Catholic Boot Camp with your drill sergeant, Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Learn the Catholic faith and how to defend it like you've never heard it before. This boot camp is tough, so there's no political correctness, no spirit of Vatican II, and no namby-pamby platitudes. Drill Sergeant Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, will prepare you for spiritual war. Now here's Joe Sixpack. A young student named Francis came to St. Philip Neri one day and told him he was going to study law. What a happy man I am. I'm going to study and become the best lawyer I can. And then what? asked Father Philip. I'll become a great lawyer and win fame for my ability to argue in court. And then what? Then I'll become wealthy and build a beautiful mansion for myself. And then what? Then I'll marry and live a comfortable life to a ripe old age. Francis, then what? The saintly priest asked again. Francis didn't know what else to say. After some thought, he said, Then I'll die like everybody else. And then what, Francis? Francis was disturbed, far from the elation he felt when he first approached St. Philip. He couldn't answer the saint's final question. Thinking about his question made Francis change all his life's plans for the future. Thanks to St. Philip Neri's buzzkill repeated question, Francis later became a priest. St. Philip's singular question, asked until there were no answers left to give, is a question we should all be asking ourselves. It's a question I've been asking myself a lot lately. It's been six years since my eldest son died, quite unexpectedly. The boy was about to celebrate his 38th birthday. He didn't die in a car crash or of cancer or of anything expected by anyone. He simply didn't wake up one morning. It's not natural for a man to outlive his son. 
You expect to die with your children, all of them, surrounding your bed to say goodbye. That didn't happen for him. But you can be sure I pray for the state of my son's soul every day. I've had the holy sacrifice of the Mass celebrated for him numerous times. He's always on my mind, and I ache when I think about the state of his soul when he died. As you know, I'm a convert. My son wasn't a Catholic, but he was a Christian nonetheless. Despite that he was a Christian, he made a lot of choices that were bad, and many of them left little to take pride in. He did, however, give me two wonderful grandchildren, one of whom made me a great-grandfather just weeks before my son's death. Still, I pray for the repose of his soul daily. I suppose I will until the day when I have to be judged myself. That my son failed to awaken one morning, and my concern over the state of his immortal soul, has made me very much afraid for the state of my own soul. My son's death reminded me of how precious life is, that it can end without warning. I'm a great-grandfather now, and great-grandfathers know they're living on the backside of life. But my son was yet a young man. You're young, aren't you? I know I don't feel like an old man, but I am. I doubt you feel old either. Perhaps you think as my son did, as I have, that there's all the time in the world. What will Jesus say to me when I stand before him at the close of life? As a man, from the cross he suffered immensely for our sins. As God, he saw all of human history, past, present, and future, in a simultaneous mode. Every sin any of us has ever committed made Christ and his humanity suffer even more. Of course, all of our good acts eased his suffering. However, the evil of our lives outweighed the good and were unbearable for him. After all, he died long before the two who were sentenced to die with him, so our sins killed him. Christ's judgment will be very exacting. Each individual soul will be judged on the good and evil we've done, all of our thoughts, desires, words, actions, and omissions, from the time we were old enough to know right from wrong. All of them, from the beginning. Once each of us is judged, our soul, which is who we really are because the body is just the earthly home for our soul, will either be rewarded with eternal life in heaven, punished in purgatory until cleansed perfectly for heaven, or condemned to an eternal damnation in hell. The reward or punishment we deserve will be carried into effect immediately after our particular judgment. Most of us can honestly say we're not bad people. Most of us can honestly say we've given life for Christ that old college try. Most of us believe we'll go straight to heaven when we die. Of course, the most of us who believe that are lying to themselves. It doesn't work that way. You see, we have to obey Jesus in all things, not just what's convenient or what we like. In order to go straight to heaven, we have to be perfect. Yes, you can become perfect. Jesus said so in Matthew 5.48, You must become perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Only those who are perfect may enter heaven. Revelation says nothing unclean shall enter heaven. Even our tiniest sins and imperfections keep us out of heaven immediately after death. That's why God gave us purgatory, so we can be perfected after death if we die in a state of grace, but have yet to do penance in this life for our imperfections. 
But how clean is your conscience? Do you obey all that Jesus commands through the church he established to be his authority on earth? Or do you pick and choose what to obey? Like you're walking through a cafeteria to pick and choose what you want for lunch. Do you dress so as to intentionally attract the attention of the opposite sex? Do you and your spouse use artificial contraception? Do you put things before God? Do you support the church from your resources? Are you lax about attending Mass, arriving late, leaving early, or simply not attending when there's something else you'd prefer to do? Do you use God's name carelessly in any of its forms? Do you obey all just laws? Do you criticize others? The list of questions could go on ad infinitum. Purgatory is not a place to strive for. It's a place to be avoided. A wise man once said that it's better to shoot for the moon so you at least hit the top of the telephone pole. Because if you aim for the top of the telephone pole, you're likely to shoot a hole in your foot. So it's infinitely better to obey Jesus' command to become perfect and fail that test with a very short time in purgatory than to live the very least of what Jesus and his church asks of us and find ourselves in purgatory until the end of the time or missing the top of the telephone pole altogether and never knowing anything but eternity in hell. Let's not forget that Jesus also told us in Revelation 3:15 and 16, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Just a little food for thought. The Catholic Church is 2,000 years old. A lot of wisdom is gained over two millennia. Each week we'll share some of that wisdom with a Catholic quote. So here's this week's Catholic quote. This week's Catholic quote is from St. John Chrysostom. He said, Whether, therefore, we receive what we ask for or do not receive it, let us still continue steadfast in prayer. For to fail in obtaining the desires of our heart when God so wills it is not worse than to receive it, for we know not, as he does, what is profitable to us. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. During the cruel persecution of Emperor Maximilian, 49 Christians had assembled in a private home for the holy sacrifice of the Mass, which was being celebrated by the priest Saturninus. Roman soldiers broke into the house during the Mass, arrested everyone present, and took them before the public tribunal. By order of the judge, they were sent in chains to Carthage, the capital city of the province. They were cruelly tortured. They were asked by the proconsul why they had assembled together in spite of the decrees of the emperor. St. Saturninus answered for all of them. He said, it's because we're not permitted to be absent from the sacred mysteries. This is the commandment and teaching of the divine law. We faithfully obey this law, and we're willing to lay down our lives for it. The judge ordered them to be thrown into prison. Those who survived the tortures inflicted on them shortly died from starvation and other hardships. 
Try to take God's third commandment as seriously as these martyrs did. They laid down their lives for it rather than disobey God. Don't put other things before Mass. Rather than disobey God and commit mortal sin by missing Mass on Sunday and holy days of obligation, remember that you're as obliged to obeying the third commandment as these martyrs were. This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.